Good morning. All right. Um, like to welcome you back from conference. Conferences, actually, there are some who are in the were in the conference before uh, our fall conference from um, uh, Intervarsity. I just want to welcome them. Let's give them a warm welcome, as well as um, those who are back from conference. Those who did not go for the conference, we welcome you back as well. What the Lord has for all of us today, in this very moment, goes beyond any particular incident that, that, or event that has taken place. Amen? One of the things that uh, we saw in the two conferences was uh, the fact that God does miracles and that He can use every one of us. So in both conferences, we saw some miracles that took place. And uh, it really makes me think about the fact that why, of why we exist as a church. Not that one person can do these things, but that the whole body of Christ has this as an inheritance. Amen? The whole reason why we exist as a, as a church, uh, the real reason for all that, is not so that we can look at it and somehow reduce it to some, something that we can do in the flesh or in the natural, but, it, but we are here so that we can do the things of heaven. Yeah? And, uh, and that is going to be increasingly the most crucial thing for us in the days to come in view of the way in which the world is going, I think as the world becomes more and more uh, evil or wicked or, or engulfed in darkness, the sign of the, the times that we're in has to do with the fact that the church becomes stronger and stronger and brighter and brighter. They're not in the things of, not in the, things of na- the natural person, but in the things of God. You know? So that more and more things come out of the church of Jesus Christ that cannot be explained by any particular rational explanation, but can, they, can, they, can, they are completely inex, inexplicable. Yeah? And so we are people who, who live from that place where the inexplicable is birthed. And there's going to come a time in which the church will be divided by those who, 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 uh, who function in the inexplicable and those who function in things that can be easily explained away. And that's really important because uh, you look in the scriptures and you find that there are always cycles of, of history in which God would raise up a man or a woman or a company of people who would be raised up in the midst of tremendous darkness and they would manifest the life of the kingdom of God, of, of heaven, which can be manif- manifest in these inexplicable things, these miracle, miraculous supernatural things, the things that have the quality the smell of heaven, compared with the things that have the smell of earth, that can be easily conflated with things that human beings can do. And, and, and what will happen is that, as that actually takes place, a move of God happens. When that move of God takes place, society begins to be transformed in a redemptive way. Okay? But the issue that follows, or that is embedded in this, is how that power can be trans, uh, uh, transferred. How, can, how that power and that life can be inherited uh, by us. And so, if you turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 13, we'll have a look at this because um, this is a, a quite well-known story regarding Elisha and his disciple who happened to be a king. 
and his disciple's name was Joash. Uh, so we're looking at 2 Kings chapter 13, and as we read this, I, I want to tell you a little bit more and more, it will develop as we go along, about what the burden of my heart is in these days for our church, okay? Um, verse 14, now when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash king of Israel went down to him and wept before him, crying, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. That is what Elisha said as a disciple to Elijah when it was time for Elijah to go. Correct? Yeah, you remember that, yeah? My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And Elisha knows that he has not that much time. It's actually, he's going soon. Okay, very, very soon. And you have to think about Elisha's relationship with Jehoaz, the king, who has been discipled, his, his disciple all this long. And Elisha has a few things left, a few moments left to communicate to Jehoaz what's really important. The backdrop of it is that Syria was becoming a power that was looming larger and larger and larger in the uh, geopolitical sphere that they were living in. And the fear, of course, because um, um, Syria was uh, as an old enemy of Israel, they're always, always, always getting at Israel. The fear was that because Syria was becoming so powerful, Israel would be in danger, tremendous danger. And so Jehoaz has been relying on Elisha's insight, spiritual insight. And Elisha has been more or less teaching Jehoaz stuff. And so Jehoaz, as he sees the chariots of fire coming, he's saying, my father, my father, exactly the same thing that Elisha said to his disciple, to his spiritual father, Elijah. And he says, the chariots and the horsemen. And so Elisha has a few moments left with Jehoaz, and it's very interesting to ask the question, if you have only a few moments left, what would you choose to say or do with the one that you're about to leave? Does that make sense? What would you say? What would you leave behind for that person? Okay. And so immediately Elisha said to him, take a bow and arrows. And so he took a bow and arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, draw the bow. And he drew it. And Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands. And he said, open the window eastward. And he opened it. And then Elisha said, shoot. And he shot. And he said, the Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria. For you shall fight the Syrians in Afek until you have made an end of them. And he said, take the arrows. And he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground with them. And he struck three times and stopped. And perhaps that those last two words that I've read are the most decisive words for that part of Israel's history. He stopped. For some reason, he just wasn't into it. He just wasn't into it. 
And because he stopped, Israel only had victory three times and it was not enough to make an end of the threat. Okay? So a lot of times what we experience in our own lives and in our own uh, Christian kind of being has to do with a move of God, something God initiates, a promise of God, and then it stops. You can go for a conference, and at the end of the conference, you're glowing with the things that God has done, the promise of it, and the, and the actual deposit of what God has done. But it's possible for us to experience it stopping in our life. What do you think? If you isolate the incident to a wonderful supernatural thing that happened and which God met us or we encountered us, we, will act, we, could, we could be in danger of actually letting it fade away or stop. And it doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't change history for us. It doesn't transform us because of the fact that there is this disjuncture or there's this disconnect between what God has done and what God wants to do, and, and, uh, and where we are right now. Today I want to talk a little bit about that, because of the fact that it's very interesting that with Elijah and Elisha, Elijah discipled Elisha, and Elisha continued in the anointing of Elijah. In fact, it grew stronger. Don't you think so? In fact, there are... There are um, double the number of miracles attributed to Elisha than that attributed to Elijah. But then when Elisha passed the baton, is that how you pronounce it, baton? We pronounce it baton. You're laughing, huh? <laughs> when he passed the baton, baton, onto Jehoaz, he faded and it stopped. And we have just experienced a tremendous move of God that at least stirred the thing of the Spirit. And we want to ask the question, how does it not stop? How does it actually not, not just not stop, but it actually goes to the next level? Amen? And if that is the case, then what Elijah, Elisha said to, to Jehoaz is very, very important. He said, take the bows and arrows and pull the arrow back so that there's force behind it. Pull the bow back. Open the window to the east. The east is where Syria was, but it's also where God comes from. Yeah, the sun rises. Yeah, the east is always, in the Old Testament, a picture of the rising of God. The east wind is always a picture of that. And then shoot it out. Towards there, so there needs to be that kind of single-mindedness that we heard about today. Okay? Because actually what God wants us to be is not a repository of nice events taking place or good, meaningful things that happen. Not just a repository of nice things happening like a little garden full of little flowers that look very, very beautiful. But like an arrow that hits the mark, right? God is taking us somewhere. He's taking you and me somewhere. All the meaning of all the meaningful, the meaning of these meaningful experiences is not just for themselves, but because he has a direction for all of us. And and there is such a thing as hitting the mark or not hitting the mark. 
Jehoaz did some good things, but he did not hit the mark. Yeah? And what happens is that um, Elisha told Elo- uh, 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 Jehoaz, hammer the ground, hit the, strike the ground three times, and, sorry, strike the ground with them. And Elisha didn't tell Jehoaz how many times to take, take the ground. Because in that crucial moment, everything depended upon how he, he, he struck the ground. And Elisha could not do that for him. He could do a few things. He could put his hand on Jehoaz and guide him. And Jehoaz may have had great ideas on how he should be done and the style of which, but he had to, at that time, submit to Elisha so that he had the imprint of Elisha's hand upon him. If, Eli- if Jehoaz just said, I'm going to do it my own way, my own creative way, my own unique individual kind of way, he would not have been discipled into the supernatural thing. He would have done the things his own way. And so he had to go through this place in which he was discipled so that his own way, his own hand, submitted to Elijah's, Elisha's hand. But there came a time when all that testing, all that process, had to be seen in the way in which he struck the ground. Correct? And he had to strike the ground repetitively, so much so that the striking of the ground would be something that he could really get into. But he couldn't get into it. Something stopped him from getting into it. Does that make sense? To him, it was just endless, meaningless rep- rep- uh, repetition. And he didn't get into it. And as a result of that, nobody could help him in that particular endeavor. And we want to go into that crucial issue there because that will determine whether you and I continue in the move of God, growing in it, or we will just kind of fade out. So in some ways, I believe what the Lord has for us after the conferences that we've been, been to, for those of us who are, who are there, but those who also are experiencing a thing of God, what God has for us is non-discontinuance of that. It's an arrow that he's taking somewhere. Amen? So I want to see whether we can, we can examine this or not. And so Elisha said, you should have struck five or six times, then you would have struck down Syria until you made an end of it. But now you will strike down Syria only three times. So Elisha died. That was it. That was it. What made Elisha, Jehoaz not be able to get into the crucial thing? What, did, what caused him to actually fall short of that? And what caused that discontinuity? Let's pray. Lord, we welcome your presence upon us, not only upon the message, but upon us. We, ask, we recognize that we are in very serious business, and we do not want to play church. We do not want to play Christian things. We want to be a people of you. We don't believe that what you began in us is meant to pitter out. 
but you have more for us. And so we ask you that you really speak to us in these days ahead, not only today, but prepare us for Syria. That in the days where many people will be confused and not know what the word of the Lord is, you will cause us to be a people who will do exploits, take, stand firm, display strength, and know you. So we ask you that you will come and throw yourself upon us, pour yourself upon us right now. We ask you that because of the seriousness of what we are facing, you will actually show us places where we could easily be stopped or discontinued. In Jesus' name, amen. There's another, I, there's another passage that I'd like to turn you to, which is Isaiah chapter 64. Needless to say, in the past few several months, this whole situation between Elisha and Joash, jo, jo, Jehoaz has been uh, upon my mind and my heart for quite a long time. It's interesting, some of you may have different translations of uh, the name Joash. Some of you will have it as Jehoaz, and some of you will have it as Joash. Yeah? And so sometimes, sometimes uh, we can, we can uh, translate it differently, but um, you may have your, in, your, in your Bible as Joash. If you, if you have it as Joash, we're talking about the same person, okay? Anyway, I was saying, there's a way in which I've been thinking about this a lot. And BCF is the seventh church that I have pastored. But sometimes, you can't tell what will come out of a pastorate. You just don't know what's going to happen. Sometimes, in a place where you've not pastored for very long, tremendous things come out. And sometimes, in a place that you pastored a long time, it's not the same. And I've been thinking thinking about it, and I've see, been seeking the Lord about what is it we as a church need in order for us to not only continue, but actually grow in what God has for us. What do, what do you say? I've been looking very, very seriously at what can cause discontinuity in an anointing of God. And to think about it in terms of our conferences that we've had, I think it's important in this very down-to-earth, very present kind of concrete situation, for us to look at this so that at least on the most basic level, after these conferences, you will not feel that God has faded out in your life or you have faded out. How about that? That's the payoff. What does God have for me? That I will not fade out. I will not just encounter God, but as, uh, as, 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 we have, we, as, as someone shared, we will actually grow in those things in the presence of God. Amen? 
Isaiah chapter 64 is, a, is, 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 is very instructive because what it does is that it tells us what we are up against. Okay, let's have a look at this. Isaiah chapter 64. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down and the mountains quaked at your presence. Isn't that amazing? Isaiah is talking about what God has for us. His prayer, his lament or his supplication to God is based upon the fact that he knows the will of God. He knows that what God wants to do is to manifest himself and come down and shake the mountains that those who don't believe in him will know that he is really alive, isn't it? That he wants to actually make heaven and earth one. He wants to tear the skin, the, the, or, or for some people, the concrete wall between heaven and earth he will, so that heaven and nature will sing, okay? Heaven and nature will sing together in harmony and so that, so that so God can manifest himself. You know, when I, re- when I read this, when I was maybe about 23 years old, it captured me and has never left me. I was, I've always been, how do you say it? I've always been, been stirred by Isaiah chapter 64 because it tells me of God's desire and it tells me that this is possible for me. Okay? Because look at the next verse. For from of old, verse 4, no one has heard or perceived by the ear, no eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You know what, it, you know what this is saying? This is unbelievable. He says, no one, has, no, one, no one has heard nor perceived by the ear, nor eye has seen a God beside you who acts for those who wait for him. He's saying, if you wait for him, okay, if you wait for him, you will experience things that no eye has seen, no ears have heard. Not some Christianified copy of what has happening in the world. It is something that no eye has seen, no ear has heard. Now, some of us have been in this church for 20 years already. Have you seen it? Have you seen it? I'm not asking you as a, as a shaming question. I'm just saying, let's look at this, okay? Let's look at this. Because I've been in the church for over 20 years as well. No eye has seen, no ear has heard the things that are that God has, has, has prepared for those who wait for Him. How long do you wait? As, at God's pleasure. But what Isaiah is saying is this, this is what God has for us in VCF. This is what God has for us. And if we don't have it, then there is something that we have to ask questions about. Does that make sense? This is not a rebuke. This is something that we want to be honest because if God is really that good, He is really that good, and He's not reduced to our good, He must be having something for us and He's pressing upon us something. Now, I've been a pastor for this church, in this church for more than 20 years. I have to ask these questions of all of us, of myself as well. Amen? Because we can somehow in the end, reduce what God does and how we experience God to relatable things that relate on the natural side 
but not the blow away side. That blow, blow us away. Amen? And I have seen myself many people who have gone further than the discipleship process that I have had with them over the years. So I believe that we do have something that God has for us. And so here's what I want to do. I want you to be very careful about that. You don't get into condemnation. That if you don't experience this in your own life, not as a condemnation, how about asking some questions? Just to lift your eyes above the hills, above the mountains to God. Do you have more for me? Or is what I'm experiencing all there is? Is that all there is to it? Yeah? How about that? Can we do it without feeling condemned? Without feeling blamed? Without feeling shamed? Can we, in the face of an awesome and infinitely fiery God, full of grace and compassion and mercy, not feel so condemned that we feel that we are hopeless, but actually in the face of that, think, my God, you have so much for me. You love me so much and you love the world so much. Can we? It's a serious question for me and I'm sure it should be a serious question for all of us. Why was there no one to take over from Elisha? Why is it Elijah had Elisha, but Elisha did not have someone to take over? And it plunged Israel into a quagmire of oppression and um, poverty. Isaiah chapter 64. If it is true, all verse 1 to verse 4, and we don't look at it as scans, we don't put filters around it, we don't, we don't look at it through the layers of our own human reduced exp expectation, our own cultural filters, if we really look at it raw, then we, we believe that if that's the case, then God has something for us. So simple who acts for those who wait for him. Acts for those who wait for him. You wait for him, God will do it. Yeah, really? But waiting is a, such an infinite thing, right? Because waiting is indefinite. How do I wait for him? When do I stop waiting for him? When can I get on with my own business, right? How long do I wait for him? It just says wait. It just says wait. For as long as it takes, right? The thing that God wants to disciple in us is not in knowledge. He's not some rabbi who's teaching knowledge. He's actually imparting supernatural stuff. He's imparting power. Faith to actually 
believe and to apprehend spiritual things that are invisible so concretely, so solidly, that they become more real to us than the things that, are, that we can see. That kind of discipleship is a different kind of discipleship from the discipleship of learning knowledge or learning Torah or learning Bible. What God is wanting to do is to impart that. And so he says, if you wait for me, I has not seen nor ear heard the things that I prepared for you. Whoa! Can you believe that? I believe that, you know, when I went church planting, and I believe that God can do things in people's lives in a city that can change the whole city's view of the church. And I've seen it. I've shared the gospel, the, 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 this with you before. I believe you can do it too in the places, the thing we call your land. I believe so. I really believe it or else I wouldn't be here. But if God says, I want to impart to you things that are of the spirit, not of the things of just that you can actually understand and kind of structure in, in your own normal way, in your own cognitive way, then you have to wait on it until you get into it. Right? I'll give you a little analogy. Um, when uh, my daughter Zephy was uh, getting ready to do her SATs, they had changed the syllabus for math. And for some reason, she and a whole class just found it really, really difficult to do. And she, she just couldn't get into it. Yeah? And so Cindy said to Zephy, Zephy, if you want to be able to understand this, you have to change the structure of your mindset so that you can get into the mindset of what they're asking you for. And for that to happen, you just have to keep on doing and doing and doing and doing and doing until the whole structure of your mind changes. Now, I'm using the word structure in, because that's my word. But Cindy said something like that. Does that make sense? Until your whole mind is conformed to the way in which these examiners or those who set the exams are wanting your mind to be. And she did it, and she did it, and she did it, and she did it, and she did it. And she did it. I, I'm sure she came to a point where she just said, this is a waste of time. But at some point, she got it. And when she got it, she could almost anticipate what was being asked. And so when she did her SAT math, she did very, very well. In fact, at Princeton, the, 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 the swimming coach says, we need you to not back out so that we can have your scores to actually pull up the rest of the swimmer's scores up because she did so well. There are things that God has for us that he wants to impart, but it doesn't get imparted just by cognitive knowledge. It has to do with something that we go through an endeavor in which we hit the crunch. And when the crunch hits, when we don't feel like it, when we find that we're just so outside to that thing, something crunches. Something breaks. Something changes inside us. And we can't change it. It has to be changed inside us. What, that's why the promise of God says, if you wait for me, I will show you things. Because what happens is the whole structure of your, your, your and my sight and our, our thought will change. It will change. That is what we need. 
Does that make sense? <laughs> My daughter, Elisa, said to me, Daddy, you tell us all these stories about how people came to Christ in your, in your, in your, in your college and all that, and you did not know any much scripture. I know that. Why can't it happen to me? Why can't it happen to me in, in, in my school? And I said, it can. And she was always wanting me to tell her something new, something that would be a key, that would be something new. I said, no, it's the same thing. It's the same thing. You just pray in the Spirit for them. And then as you pray in the Spirit, the structure of your heart, your spirit, your mind will change. And when that changes... You'll be there at the right place at the time and you can't accept instinctually do whatever God takes you, wants to do. It may not be telling the whole story of the gospel. It may not be doing anything. It may be just slapping the table with your hand. You remember the Argentina revival, right? The Argentina revival, they just prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed, and prayed until they got, got fed up of praying and got fed up of being fed up of praying. And then suddenly somebody came to a point where the, the, the mind and the spirit was so fluid to God that God could say, hit the table. And she hit the table and boom, the Holy Spirit came and revival started happening from Bell and, and spread out to all these places. I'm not sensing that we are there yet. Because if we are there, would, a lot more would be happening. And so I just told her that. And she did. And then she went to Peru. And what happened was that she had, she had suffered from this terrible <laughs> sickness which would always happen when she traveled and she would get nausea and she would be very, very sick. She couldn't get out of bed. And she was going to go to Peru because the Lord gave her that word to go to Peru. And, she, and I remember one time when she went, went with the youth in BCF to, I think, Big Bear or, Mount, or, or Mammoth or one of those nearby mountain places. And, uh, and she got so sick. She got so sick. In fact, before this, there had never been a time in which she had gone on a, on a, to a place that was high altitude and not been sick. And now she was saying she wanted to go to Peru, which is one of the highest table mountain areas in the world. And we said, you better not, you know. But in the end, the Lord was speaking to her, and she did. She went. And as she went, she knew that she had to gather up her prayer, and she had to function in a whole different realm, a whole different logic. Not twist the logic of earth, but to actually be translated in a different dimension. And that had to come from God's side. All she could do is to wait, pray in the Spirit, pray in the Spirit, until something takes place. If you don't wait, then it, you just don't have enough space for it. You're just like a little pocket square in which you want God to do everything in there. Okay, so she went. The first thing that happened as they got to, I believe, Lima, everybody on the trip got sick, except her. Except her. Because something had been deposited in her, a knowing that was even greater than our advice. This is where the parents gave the wrong advice. Prudent but wrong. And sometimes you and I can be prudent but wrong. And, 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 and you know what happened that day in the airport? She ended up praying for every single one of them. 
for healing. And some of them got healed. She went there, and she had this burning thing. Why can I bring people? Can I not bring people to the Lord? And 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 she knew only one thing. Her, the advice that her father, who talks too much most of the time, this time he could only say one thing: just pray in the spirit and be open. Let the prayer in the spirit do its work upon you. Does that make sense? At first, when you're praying in the spirit, you think you are praying in the spirit. At a certain point, you must come to a point in which praying in the Spirit is doing something to you. You are being the object, not the subject. Does it make sense? No? Thank you, Kim. <laughs> it breaks you. It breaks you. You come to that point that Je- Jehoash or Je- Joash comes to where he just realizes how not into it he is. Into that repetition. She broke through. She, had to, she was invited to give a testimony. And so, um, 10 classes, each of them having uh, a certain number of people. I believe it was like 20 or 30 people came. And she would, then they, would, she would, they would come in, she would go into the class, and she would share a testimony. And then she would go one more step further she would give an altar call. She was never asked to do that, but she did. And at the end of it, 60 people came to the Lord. Around 60, more or less, I don't know. She came to the Lord. She came back. She knew she had got something in spite of what her parents had told her. She worked in a, in a, in a cafe, a Japanese restaurant, I think, Japanese cafe, and one day her boss came came into the to the to the place. She was just working as a cashier, and she said, and he was complaining about how unhappy and how hopeless he was about life and all that. He was just really not very happy. And she and he came to her. You see, when you are in the different dimension of, uh, in God, things happen. They come to you, and you can recognize it. You don't go straight into your own. Right? earthly thinking, you can recognize it. And when you recognize it, you can move. And somehow, you just know the right thing because you are in the groove. Does that make sense? You're in the groove. The main thing is getting into the groove. How does that happen? And so, she said, can I pray for you? And then all heaven broke out. He was converted. He started crying. He fell on the ground and he saw a bright light and he felt electricity coming and he got up and he's the type of person who's so gregarious, he goes to every table, the table of his guests, and he tells him, I'm feeling electricity, I'm feeling electricity. Go, and, and, and he became a Christian. Today, even on Zoom, he still comes to, 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 to tune into our church services. And since then, he has opened up his place to, for Bible study and all that. I has not seen, the, well, not yet, think, not yet heard the things that God has prepared for us. Now, here's the thing. In Isaiah chapter 64, Isaiah gives us some keys. Wait for him. It's really interesting that God is completely imperious in the way he says, wait for me. He doesn't say, I'll be understanding to you. 
just whenever you can spare time, you just, uh, he says, you wait for me. The way you would wait for a God. Not the way you would wait for your friends who is obligated to be understanding to you. God is infinitely understanding, but he says, imperiously, you wait for me, and I will come. I may not come immediately, but if you keep on having a habit of waiting upon me, then I will do that. Does that make sense? Now, you don't wait for me when you feel inspired. You don't wait for me when you feel trouble or you feel the need for it. You wait for me as a habit. Amen? So that your life makes space for me. So like you're not like a pocket square, but like a bed sheet waiting for the wind to blow. Amen? That immediately separates out people, Christians. Doesn't it? There will be some people, usually they're a remnant, they're a minority, who will really wait for him. And it doesn't mean wait and spend the whole day waiting and doing nothing. It means that they are orientated towards him. Their eyes are single-minded towards him. Single-minded. And in that breaking, in that, in that waiting, something breaks. Cindy was talking about that. The bread breaks. And when the bread breaks, something supernatural comes out of it. There's a multiplication. There's something that, that takes place. Now, what happens is this. As, a, as, as what, what uh, Isaiah is saying, you just wait upon me, a person who's really hungry will get a lot out of that word. Don't you think? A person who's like really seeking for his, his city or her city or his family or her, her college or, or, her, or her institution or hospital or whatever it is to be saved, they will say, just give me one key, just give me one fragment, one crumb. And they're praying, they're praying and praying and praying, willing to do anything. They come to a point where they're so willing to do anything, they're bendable. They're so, they are, their hearts are so fluid, their will is so fluid in the hands of the Lord that they say, okay, whatever it is, and they hear a word, wait for me, Dude, they'll wait. You watch those people. They're crazy, you know. They're not normal. They're not, they're, not, they're not ordinary. They don't live the normal life. They wait. You watch them in the bus station. Instead of, of looking at the newspaper or looking at the phone, they're just going like that. They look weird. They're orientated towards God. Nobody's doing that. None of their Christian friends are doing that, but they are doing it. They are, they are praying. You're always praying in, in, in the Spirit. You're always doing that. I'm not saying that you should be that way, but I'm saying that when it comes to the key, that is what, that, that is what they are prepared to do. Amen? And that's how it was for me when I was involved in this place in which I had to see God do mighty work. I just had to. Because unlike many Christians, I would be plunged into doubt about the Bible if that was not true. If it was not true, then I'd have to take the Bible with a pinch of salt. If Jesus says, the things that I will do, you will do also, I have to believe that I'm growing in that, even though I'm not doing everything that Jesus did. I can see myself growing in that. If not, if I were honest with myself, being the skeptic that I am, I would think that all Christians are feeble-minded because they don't really believe what their Bible says. 
And that is exactly what one famous uh, atheist said. The reason why I can't believe in, in Christianity is you don't believe in it. You don't believe in it. You don't do it. You don't believe in it. And you reduce it to some other form. And that argument cannot be argued against except by signs and wonders. Except by the power and the presence of God. We are dealing with a whole different quality of thing here. Does that make sense? Now, here's, here's the thing. He says, verse 5, You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you are angry and we sin. In our sins we have been long time and shall we be saved? We have all become like one, verse 6, who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. And there is no one who calls upon your name who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. And so I just want to just focus on this a little bit for, for this chapter. Basically, uh, Isaiah is saying, our, the nature of our, our human frame is that we have a proclivity to fade away. Okay? We fade away easily. No one rouses himself. So we fade, but we don't rouse ourselves up. And it sounds a little, I don't know whether you feel this way, but my first, on first blush when I was reading that, I felt that it sounds a little striving. Right? Striving, it's like rousing yourself, like what? rousing yourself. But what, what Isaiah was saying is this, our nature is that we fade away. We don't actually, we can't actually last. That's the frame that we have, that we are just inconsistent. We are just flaky. We're just flaky and we fade away. And what Isaiah is doing is that he's, me, he's focusing on the basic problem that we have in terms of not experiencing the coming down of God and that amazing thing. And today I'd really like to just focus on that today. Yeah? The fact that we fade away. How do we not fade away? How do we not fade away from a great experience at Paul Conference? where we've experienced miracles or experienced God. How do we not fade away? He says, you have to rouse yourself up. There's no one rouses himself up. It's almost as if the critical point is when you need to rouse yourself up. When the fading, the not, not being into it, rises up. What say you? We hope that the Holy Spirit will be so Holy Spirity that he will come and we don't have to strive. There's a misunderstanding of the, phrase, the, the, the verse, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Don't you think? We think that if it's the Holy Spirit, we won't need to rouse ourselves up. We don't need to have vows. We don't have need to have structure. We don't need to have discipline. We don't need to have this. We think that somehow if it's of the Spirit, the misunderstanding is that if it's the, the Spirit, then we won't need to come against the flesh. In fact, we think that because the Holy Spirit is within us, the flesh is already not a problem. And because of that, anything that looks like some kind of effort or some kind of structure or some kind of legalism makes us go, no, no, I don't want any of that. Right? I want to put it to you that what God has done in your life the past few weeks is 
not supposed to just remain as an event, but it's actually meant to have a practice and a structure that will involve your will and my will, or else it'll just fade away. Unless a rousing has, structure has, has been instituted in your life and my life, we will go the way of the flesh. We will not just drift away. We will actually be, be, be taken away. It says, our iniquities, like the wind, have carried us away, have taken us away. Does that mean, that, you, you know what that means? That means that life is not a calm sea in which we drift. Life is a sea full of currents. There are godly currents and there are demonic currents. There are fleshly currents. You put yourself like a boat in the sea, it will, it will move. It will move. You put a balloon in the air, it will move and it will move according to winds and wind currents. Does that make sense? It doesn't just float and be in still, in still motion. It will, it will carry itself away. Now, the, the natural tendency after a conference is for the devil as well as your flesh to move you into a current. The first thing you will experience is not neutral air or neutral water, but a current. And what Isaiah is saying is that there's a current that takes us naturally away. In spite of the fact that God has set up all this possibility for us to experience His great power and actually cause us to experience it, there is a possibility for us to actually fade away because of the fact that the natural state of things is that there are currents. Our, our iniquity, our natural desires, our own tastes and all, take us away. And so what the Old Testament understood is this. We make vows. We make vows to God and we discipline ourselves and we commit ourselves to certain things because those certain, those certain things are things that will help us to stay within the ballpark of where God is moving. That's why we do our devotions and we, we stake out time. If you don't stake out time and you only wait for yourself to be inspired or when things, uh, or where, where things allow you, circumstances allow you, you will never go into the, those places where God is talking. You will be able to play around Around, around the seashore, and it will, it will be wet enough for you to feel that God is there. But it's not going to be wet what God has for you. Does that make sense? You'll have a it's kind of a three-time success Joash style. But it will not be something in which what God has designed us, you and I, for will uh, um, actual, actualize. So, one, may, I, may, may I suggest to you that in order for us to ex experience a structure for growth, so that what God has done in our lives, whether it's in the conference or, or even from our conversion, actually grows, you have to contend with the fact that in your, your flesh and my flesh, there is this proclivity to fade away. And there are things that God calls us to that we are not into. We're just not into because our gifting, we can call it our calling or whatever, whatever little we know about that, will make us think, oh no, I'm not called for these things. I'm just, I'm just something else. But you need Elijah's hand upon your hand to guide you so that when there comes a time in which you will actually find yourself being able to get into it. Okay? Now, if you don't believe me, look at uh, Colossians chapter, uh, chapter 1. Uh, 
verse 29. You don't have to turn to it. Paul says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that powerfully works in me. So you cannot say that Paul did not strive. No, he actually, for this I toil, struggling with all the, the, the energy that he powerfully works in me. In Ephesians chapter 2, it says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the cause of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Can you see this? The prince of the power of the air, according, following, right? There's a cause. Following the cause of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. What, what, what we have in Colossians and Ephesians is this, is this. There is a tendency for us to go in the cause of this world. But that power has been broken by Jesus. As Cindy said, and she broke the bread. He broke the power of those things. He broke the power of these proclivities to faith. He broke the power of that thing that tells you you're not into it, you can't get into it. He broke that power. He broke the power of our willfulness so that our will can be used by God. The will becomes a very powerful instrument of God because with that same will that used to be infirm, now it becomes powerful to do the will of God, even through things that we don't, we're not into. Does that make sense? So what Paul is saying is this, I hit this crunch, you know, I hit this struggles part, the, that part where I'm really not into it, the, the part that Joash was into, into the, where I need something to be able to carry me through, to overcome the currents, to, or, to overcome the cause of this world, the spirit that works within, within the children of discipline. I need something. And the great news is this. We are not talking now about being legalistic and striving in the flesh. We're talking about God having come in Jesus Christ to break the power of that so that when you're a Christian, you're not a Christian because you signed on the dotted line. You became a Christian because something inside you broke. And if you surrender your life to Christ, that thing will break. It has already broken 2,000 years ago. You can appropriate that for yourself. Does that mean you don't have a struggle? Colossians says, chapter 1 says, I, I strive or I, 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 I toil mightily with the, according to the power that works mightily in me. Does that make sense? It doesn't mean that you don't have to come to that point of struggle, but when you struggle, you will win. The misunderstanding is that when you become a person who's filled with the Holy Spirit, you will not struggle because that's all striving. No. What happens is this. Breakthroughs happen through a thing called struggle. Waking up. Um, Keith Green said, Jesus rose from the dead and we can't get out of bed. And what Paul says is that you don't frustrate the, work, the grace of God. So the thing about it is this. You will come to those places. Those places are the serious places where you're in the, in the real game now. No longer the game of having God 
move in a conference in which he moves by his spirit and you didn't have to do anything, you, you just got blown away or you got warmed in your heart. You're, that's, that's, just, that's just the beginning part. The real part is, how can I experience that power in my life when you come to that crunch where you don't feel like doing your quiet time, you don't commit yourself, you don't feel like committing yourself to prayer, you actually come to a point where you say, God, you know my proclivity, you know my weakness, but on the cross, I reckon with the fact, as Cindy said, that you died for me and you broke that power. And by faith, I receive it, I'm going to stay. Amen? That's, this is, this is going to be the dividing line between whether we have a breakthrough or we continue in a breakthrough or we just have a good experience and it just falls to the ground because you fade. You fade, I fade. Our iniquities carry us away. That is the, that is the true nature of the spiritual cosmos. Our, our iniquities fade us, away, fade us away. But the thing is this. If we understand that Every growth needs a structure for growth to be committed to. That's why Psalm 65 says, you know, blessed is the person that you bring close to, to your, your, um, your presence. I fulfill my vows. Those vows are not fleshly things. Those vows are the necessary human, natural way in which spirit becomes enfleshed, become reality. And in the past, in the Old Testament, we couldn't do it because we didn't have the power to. So every time we came to the crunch, we'd, we'd fall, out, fall out. But thanks be to God, to Christ, who has given His life for us, He has exchanged His life with ours. So much so that we do not have to be overcome by that. We don't have to be afraid of commitment. Hello? You don't have to be overcome by commitment. You can actually commit yourself to a company of people who say, we are going li- to live by this. We're going to live by the standard that God has called for us because we are, we, are, we are wanting more from Him. You can live by that. You can say, I'm not going to just do a privatized Christianity in which I just do whatever I want. Nobody, te- no, nobody should ask me anything, any questions about it. But I say, I know myself. I know the, 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 the wickedness in me. I know the, the weakness, the lameness in me. I need your help, brother and sister. And so I'm willing to, uh, to be accountable to, to, you, to, to you under God. Unless you do that, you will live a privatized Christianity in which you will do everything more or less according to your whims, your, 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 your feelings. And when it gets really hard, it will be too hard for you. How do I get through the things that are too hard or too soft? How do I get past that? I come to to the cross. I recognize that Christ has died for me. Thank you, Daniel. I don't know what I did. Thank you. I recognize what Christ did for me on the cross. And because of that, I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid to commit myself to daily prayer. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid of God's imperious demands upon me to wait upon Him. I'm not afraid of the fact that I'm called to live a life in which discipline is going to be something in which I die to my own rights to do whatever I want in any time I want because I'm going for God. That is the difference. That is the difference. That is the difference. 
there are some people, there are some people, they are a minority, and I hope that we will one day be, be part of that, who say, yes, I, want, I have a bigger vision. I can remember a time in my life when I was younger that I had my heads, my, my sights upon lower things, things that, are, that, that, that will give me glory in the world. But I have my sights on higher things now. The things that I have my sights on now, today, at, at this point in my, my own life and ministry, are much higher. I was prepared to be able to, to have a kind of a mixture of good and kind of, kind of mediocre. Not anymore for now on. From now on, I have, no, I have not much time. I have not much time. So because of that, I only see what God has for me in Isaiah chapter 64. I only see what God has for us as a church. I'm not willing to give my life for anything less than that. I don't know why some, are, some Christians are willing to. I'm not willing to. I'd rather not be around than to actually give my life to that. That kind of thing that is a lie, that gives ammunition for atheists to say, you don't even believe your gospel. I have to believe that there is more for us. And I'm calling each one of us to not leave the conference as a truncated experience, but for something that God can do. I have many, many people who I have pastored for many, many years before, who have done mighty, mighty things and are doing mighty, mighty things. I can prove to you why this is really true. Not only in the Bible, not only in testimonies that I hear on YouTube and all that, but in my own life. BCF is the, is the church that I pastored for the longest time, more than 20 years. Most other, the, the, the other church, the, the longest I've pastored in any other church is six years. We have... God's grace. We can, we, can, we, we can choose. And perhaps there are some of us who will say, okay, I want God's hand upon my hand. I don't want my hand to be made, made known. I don't want anybody to see my hand. Actually, let my hand be covered. Because my hand is not that good. But I realize there are going to be some times in which I'm very weak. And I just don't feel like it. I'm just not into it. I need you, Lord Jesus. I need the way in which you broke your body on my behalf so that that which you did can be appropriate into my life so that when I feel antsy during my quiet time and I don't feel like I want to do it or it just doesn't feel like I want to be involved in things in church or whether it's in prayer or it's in discipleship or in service, I want to come before you, not just to keep doing it, but just to come before you and say, Lord, I need something more than that. Because what's at stake is not what this person thinks of me or what that person thinks of me, but what is at stake is the very Bible that I purport to believe in. And what's at stake is my children as well, whether they will see it or not. Amen? Let us pray. Bless your name, Lord.
we amply heard God speaking during the worship. But the very things that we've been talking about. Put your hand upon us, Lord. Hide our hand. So that we'll be effaced, that we'll be hidden in the palm of your hand. We'll be hidden with Christ in God. We welcome you. We thank you you have more for us. Such is your love. Such is your love for the world and for us. And so we welcome you. Come, Holy Spirit. I want to invite you to just open your hands. To the Holy Spirit. It's not just symbolic, but it's sacramental. That means when we do this physical thing, something spiritual and real takes place. We open our hands and we say, Holy Spirit, overflow me. Remove any barrier that prevents me from experiencing the fullness of you. Raise my sights, Lord, to you. In the name of Jesus. I'm not exaggerating when I believe that each one of us can see a move of God. Where we work, where we study, where we live, where we move and have our being. And we can ask the question, what does it take for me to see that happen? I remember Rusty Tita, who was with us. He studied in Fuller, but he was part of our home fellowship that Cindy and I had. He went back to um, Texas, and then the move of God just opened up and like fire. It just went through the, com the campus. And I remember being invited to speak at the conference with the Wesley Foundation and the Holy Spirit moved and I remember he just said you know the thing that that made it happen was that I just learned to copy I just learned to copy again and again copy and copy and copy and copy I don't know how God works to each one of us but if we wait upon him he'll give us the key so we welcome you. We welcome you, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, I need you. Come, sweet Spirit, I pray. Come, in your strength and your power. Come in your own gentle way. Let's sing it together. Come, Holy Spirit, I need you. 
Come, sweet Spirit, I pray. Come in your strength and your power. Come in your own gentle way. The Holy Spirit may be showing you some structure of commitment, some kind of thing that He's calling you to that will facilitate growth growth in the things of God. Without such structures, our growth is random and mostly fading away. If there's something that the Lord is selling you that will give you a place in which because of its very regularity will sometimes bring you to places where you're just not into it. And you have to call upon the, the reckoning that Christ not only died to those things for you on your behalf, but rose again that you can experience His resurrection life in that place where you're struggling. Talk to God about it right now. We bless your name, Lord. In this most crucial of issues right now, we welcome you with all your grace, all your glory, and all your promise that every single one of us can be used by you and experience great glory. In Jesus' name, amen.